0: This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Man, worship has been was good this morning, wasn't it? I mean, like, yow. All right. Well, anyhow, good to see you. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life hey a couple of things just before we get into the message want to kind of bring up to you know to to mine for you uh important things to keep in mind you know we are uh we're doing our other uh, demolition later today which will be those uh four rooms over there behind the booth so you can see the black curtain here where we demolish some rooms we're going to demolish rooms over there i i guess we're going to put up another black curtain uh you know uh while we figure all of that those little details out but the reason I'm bringing all that up to you, you know, just simply as uh, we uh, work toward that end, you know, part of that, the specific reason we're doing that is we are talking about going to one service. And right now, it, you know, barring, dif- you know, too many difficulties or whatever else, plan is August 6th, first Sunday in August. Uh, and so that will be at 10 a.m. And so I want to put that on your radar, but let me also get you to do this. Let me encourage you, if you do not currently get our newsletter, if you would grab one of those cards in front of you that say, you know, connect, and make sure, you know, like fill that out and give us a working email address. doesn't do any good to give us your throwaway address because you'll never, you know, find, you'll never get it. Uh, But we would really like to encourage you, uh, fill that out. Let us know who it is on the card. Don't just give us your email address so you know. And then like say, check the box that says, yes, I would like the newsletter. And you'll be getting that newsletter and we will keep you uh, up to date on those things as they unfold. Of course, you'll be able to see it on the website and on our Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But let me encourage you, uh, the best way to get that information is through the newsletter. All right. All right. Well, on to the Gospel of John. You know, as you saw there in the uh, video, if you haven't been with us, the theme of the Gospel of John is primarily talking about eternal life. There are many sub-themes throughout the book. It's a, a, a you know, it's a large book, 21 uh, chapters, and so a lot to uh, to consider, to mull over. Uh, so when you pick a theme, uh, you're talking about the thing that runs primarily through the book, but there's lots of sub-themes along the way. Uh, We've been talking about some of those as well. But this whole idea of eternal life is wrapped up in the idea not only of speaking repeatedly about what eternal life is, defining eternal life as to know uh, the only true God and Jesus Christ His Son, But then the phrases eternal life, abundant life, and then throughout the text, the reference, the worst use of the word life throughout the uh, Greek, the original language that the book was written in, employs the word sozo or zoe, rather than in using the word bios, from which we get life. So we have biology, right, as the study of life. And so um, when any other time that you see life appearing in the text, uh, that is not in reference to that. It's using that word bio for you know that we get biology from. But here in this text, uh, over and over again, he employs those words, Sozo and Zoe, talking about a, a quality of life, uh, you know, and rather than just the simple idea of existing. And the emphasis being throughout the book, continually, is not like looking towards eternal life, like we're going to arrive someplace, but rather the idea of getting eternal life into us. The life of the Father, the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit being infused into our present life our bios life being infused with real life, sozo life, so that it overflows in who we are, and that quality of life not only overflows through us, but to those around us. Now, today we're wrapping up a rather long narrative that started four weeks ago. Uh, If you haven't been with us over that time, I encourage you to go back and take a look at some of those things. I promise today will stand alone on its own enough that you won't be lost but it started all the way back there in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 followed by Jesus walking on the water. Then three weeks ago we continued through Jesus as the bread of life. And then last week we entered into the, uh, the whole experience of Jesus at the Feast of Booze. He was, uh, his decision to go to the Feast of Booze after he said he would not go. Today we're in the last day of the feast as he's wrapping up his time there in Jerusalem, kind of putting all those pieces together, and he's really going to wrap up as well, John is going to wrap up for us this whole picture of what he's been trying to tell us, collectively through those events through the words of jesus uh, and how this all he's put this together very purposefully uh, in a way that communicates to us a bigger picture than just the individual events by themselves so let's take a look john chapter 7 starting in verse 32 if you're using a phone or tablet please do me the favor and set that to silent for the sake of those around you i'm going to read it from the english standard version but Follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. That's my favorite today because you're reading. Let's take a look. John 7, beginning in verse 32, and we read these words. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that, he, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the villages where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Of God's Holy Word very combative text it opens with the crowd muttering things about Jesus and the chief priests and the Pharisees irritated about what is being said uh, and so they want him to be arrested uh, if you'll remember last week, uh, as he made the decision to come down, uh, there was some uh, hesitancy on the part of Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And the emphasis has been again and again in John's writing that it was because it was not his time, he did not want to be seized. He did not want to be arrested. He didn't want to be seized by the crowd who was looking to take him as king, Messiah, uh, in a political sense. Uh, as well as a religious sense, uh, there, there was this whole ideology that we've talked about that ran deeply through the culture, through their theology, through their understanding that was contrary to actually what the scriptures were teaching. They were pulling things out of its context and had created an idea, an ideology, that they were kind of you know, bent on seeing come to pass. That's part of the picture in all of this. Um, And so Jesus is resisting them, we see repeatedly throughout the book where Jesus uh, is about to be seized by a group of people and he will disperse the crowd, he will make himself unavailable. We also see that repeatedly the authorities, uh, whether they be religious authorities or uh, governing authorities or whatever else, or a combination uh, of the both, uh, are are working to seize him and have him arrested uh, on an unexplained charges they're not sure how to handle it uh, they are continually coming and testing him right looking for the place where they can find some objectionable thing so that they can accuse him under the law Deuteronomy chapter 13 provides clear you know a uh, pu- uh, case for punishment uh, when, in terms of capital punishment if someone is leading the people astray and leading them to false gods leading them to false understandings about God that they could be put to death. And so this murmuring is happening in the crowds. He's reminded there again, just there in verse 32. The murmuring is continuing. They're all asking the question, if this man is not the Messiah, then who is? I mean, would, any, would anyone else be doing more miracles, be doing greater things? Listen to his teaching. Listen to what he's telling us. And, and so as they're listening to his words, they're convinced about who Jesus is, they have essentially decided there in the midst of the crowd this must be the messiah and they keep pointing to things at the same time uh, others are raising subjections Uh, uh, but this guy comes from galilee this guy uh, doesn't fit everything we've been told and so there's some wrestling uh, one against tradition two there's wrestling because they just don't know all the details and so they think that there's contradiction and 3 there's just actually a lack of awareness of what the word teaches even though they have been studying it but they have repeatedly studied it under the tutelage of tradition of uh of you know the weight of those things and so there is a lack of understanding across the board and so all these things are working together and jesus is specifically removed himself from situations so that he would not be seized prematurely by the religious leaders who will put him to death because he's still discipling his his disciples and the apostles. He's still preparing them, getting them ready to take over. And you and I can see how every minute of those three years was needed because as we watch uh, and we read those events, uh, of, the la- of his last days, right? And, and we watch how the disciples, the apostles specifically, kind of fall apart in that moment. They, they run, they scatter, you know. Uh, they are afraid. They don't know how what to think. They don't know how to process it. Uh, Peter, who's clearly declared his uh, loyalty to Jesus, I will die for you. And he even proves that he is serious about that when the, when the chief priest's guards come to seize him, he draws his sword and takes the ear off of Malchus. Keep that in, firmly in mind when you're remembering who Peter is. Remember that Peter's one of the only ones, and we will see this clearly as we go through the Gospel of John, but he's one of the only ones who will follow at all after that moment when Jesus is arrested. Most of them scatter and are unheard from until after the events. Peter is determined... To liberate Jesus and when things don't go the way he understands it's supposed to go is when he makes his moment of declaring I don't even know the man which there's some level of truth to if you think about it in that he had an idea about who Jesus was even after spending three years with him day and night he's having a revelatory moment he's being illuminated in a way that he's like uh, This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for the Messiah where we go and we draw swords on the Romans and like mow them down and we take over and then the glory, you know, cloud comes because we're in charge and everybody else sits down and shuts up. That's the Messiah I signed up for. And when I don't get that Messiah, I melt because I've given myself to this, holy. And it's true sometimes even among us, right, is that sometimes we give ourselves to ideas about God that aren't necessarily Scripture. And then when life comes colliding with our ideology or our theology, if you will, sometimes we don't know what to do. We're not sure about God anymore. I, you know, I, I said, I remember you know saying this many times. Please don't ever brush it off. It's important that you and I settle who God is and that He is good when times are good, so that you don't have to decide that when you're going when you're going through the mix. When life is coming at you, you don't want to be deciding right then because you will make bad decisions. You will make decisions based on your emotive in the moment rather than based on the truth of who god is and so it's really important to settle those things ahead of time so here we are in this situation the climate is tremendously chaotic there's uh, people wanting to seize him there's people wanting to seize him for good in their minds there's other people who want to seize him to destroy him and um and in the midst of this the jewish leaders were hesitant to arrest him because they didn't have any grounds every time they go to you know test him every time they uh, throw questions out at him to trap him he like makes them look tremendously foolish and so they don't have Deuteronomy 13 grounds and now the people have caught on to this and the murmurings getting louder and out of panic they decide okay you know what we're going to arrest him anyhow We have got to shut this guy down and shut him up. So bring him in. And they send the guards out to go get him, at which point they will be tremendously frustrated, you know, because the people they said will be like, man, never did a guy ever speak like that before. You know, and they're like, you know, you you can almost you can just almost hear the frustration in the text, right? Where they're like, yeah, well. Do you see any of us following that? And you're like, you know you're at a point of frustration, right? Like raising children is one of the things I think about. When your kid says something that like totally unravels the argument you were just making, and you go, yeah, well, you know what? You want me to spank your butt? (laughs) And your kid's like, wow, that was a dumb, empty argument. (laughs) You know, your kid's looking at you like, and you're like, and you don't have anything to say. Don't you love those moments? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you are the kid in that, re- whenever you see your parent at that point, like it's time to quit. Just you know, you're not winning. Okay, you're really not going to win. You're going to lose on a for a dumb reason. Anyhow, uh, and my point just simply being, their issue with Messiah is politics. It's not advantageous to the nation state of Israel specifically. It's not. In, in, it, it's not helpful to them. They have a very clear path, and he's contradicting what they think is supposed to happen. Especially them being exalted, them being put in places of honor. And as they're losing their grip on the nation, the people, the politics, the, the whole thing, like those who are in authority, the one thing they do not want to lose is their power, their position. right? I mean, that, that is, that's the intolerable thing. And so they're losing their minds at this point and doing the most irrational things. And now they're like, even though they know the law is not on their side, they know, you know God's law is not on their side, they're going to arrest him anyhow. Like, just, just we're going to do something. They, haven't, they don't even know what yet, but you and I know what's really in their hearts, right? Because they do eventually get their moment, and they put Jesus to death on the cross. In spite of everything that is said, they find a way. Now, as all of that's going on, we also get a kind of a sub narrative there that John tells us. In the middle of their attempt to arrest Jesus and 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 all of this, he's telling them that he's going away, and you watch what the religious leaders do. They're ready to kill him, right? They're ready to have him put to death on the basis of Deuteronomy 13. But if you want to know what their real heart is, follow this line. They start asking, do you think maybe he's going to the dispersion? Now, if you're not familiar with that word dispersion, dispersion is a word we use to talk about any people group that is relocating to another place. For instance, one of the largest people dispersions today uh, are Filipino people working on cruise ships. Did you know that? Like, and, and one of the things that is really interesting is that in the, in the bowels of many of your cruise ships, as you're upstairs you know, living it up the high life, down below decks are Filipino missionaries who are leading other people from other nations to Christ. There's Bible studies going on. Did you know that? one of the greatest missionary efforts in in the 21st century are filipino catholics who are purposely putting themselves into service industry so they can come alongside people of other uh, you know uh, smaller ethnic groups who have not been exposed to the gospel and they lead small groups bible studies discipleship groups on cruise ships and in hotel back rooms and things like that isn't that cool Amen. See, you never know. See, no one's going to report on that in the news, but anyhow. Uh, uh, so, uh, it, the, so dispersion, in this case, the dispersion they're talking about are Jews who are dispersed among the nations. Uh, if you would think in terms of Acts chapter 2, when all the people have come to Jerusalem, and then by the power of the Spirit, Peter stands up to you know, give the message. But before they do, there is this the rushing wind, and the Spirit of God falls on the people, and they speak, uh, and some people just hear chaos. But other people in the midst of that say, I have heard in my own language, my heart language, uh, the message that, of the glory of God. I've heard these things, and so they're drawn in in that moment. And the reason that there's all those languages represented is they are the dispersion. They've gone out to the nations and remember that one of the job, the primary job of being the chosen people, is not privilege, but responsibility. Let me remind you, as a person chosen by the Spirit of God, that means primarily not your uh, advantage, but your responsibility. It's not your privilege, but your opportunities. You and I have been called to be ambassadors for Christ, to be a light unto the nations, salt unto the earth. And so that was the mission of the dispersion, to be in the nations bringing the good news, the hope of freedom and of the gospel. And that is why in Acts chapter 4, when they decided just all of them stay in Jerusalem and have kind of, you know, the Holy Ghost party, like they're like going, oh man, service is really good today. We're not going anywhere. And so finally God says, well, okay, if you won't go, I'll just lift my hand of blessing and protection off of you and they will scatter you to get rid of you so that you will go and do what I told you to do in the first place. Maybe the reason God has lifted his hand of blessing off you is not out of wickedness, but just out of you preferring your comfort to the mission of God. Maybe, maybe, somebody, anybody. Okay, just just a thought. It's just, you know, you you like leave that one hang out there. But, uh, you know, uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, the dispersion is what he's always using. And so in this case, they're thinking, well, there's all these Jews living out there Uh, to this day. Like some of the largest people group uh, are in, in what, you know, in Persian territories like Iran and uh, parts of Iraq and stuff like that. Some of the largest Jewish dispersions to this day. Of course, the others are all in New York City. But, um, you know, uh, nonetheless, there is this dispersion, right? And, And they're going, well, maybe he'll go to them. Now, let that sink in for just a moment. They want rid of him. And they think they are telling people that he ought to die. Based on the law in Deuteronomy. And now they're going, wait, 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 wait. Hey, maybe we don't have to kill him. Maybe we'll just get rid of him and he'll go to our people who aren't, that are in the nations, and that's how we'll get rid of him. I want you to let that sink in. What do you have to know in your heart of hearts if you really believe that this guy is worthy of death? If this guy's really deceiving your people, why would you let him escape? Or the truth is, you don't believe that. And you know that what you're doing is wholly wrong. You know that this is murder. And the only thing you really want is to hold on to your position and power. And so if you can just get rid of him somehow, that's fine. Let him go out and be there, the light to the nations. He wants to be the light to the nations. Let him go. Just get him out of here so that we can keep our stuff. That's some seriously twisted thinking. That's what power, you know, often does to people betrays their true heart in the matter. So there, amid the chaos of the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, as I mentioned last week in brief, it was customary for the priests to end the festival by pouring out water and wine in the temple to commemorate the divine provision of water in the wilderness. And so Jesus builds on these verses there in 38 and 39, Join not on the imagery of Isaiah 55.1. Can I get you to put... Oh, there we go. Thank you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. No, this is not for you to go stack up your credit cards, okay? <laughs> this is not justification for you, you know, to go uh, into debt, no. That what he's saying in the midst of that, in that verse, is he's talking about that where God is their provision and understanding that he's the source of all things. And so he draws on this and begins to talk about being the living water. We also think in terms of like in John chapter 4 when he's at the well with the Samaritan woman, right? And and so we have these pictures over and over again of the idea of the, the well of life springing up from within and that it overflows to others. The idea of our abundant life, our eternal life overflowing to others so that the presence of God goes with us that we are bearers of his image but not only bearers of his image having been created like him but then also now we have been conformed and transformed into the uh uh, you know to little messiahs christians little anointed ones and from us overflows this living water into the lives of everyone else around us so the water and the wine they symbolize yahweh's provision And now here summed up in Jesus as Yahweh in the flesh. He's made himself known now through these last two chapters, right? And we have this picture. He feeds the 5,000, which is miraculous, taking five dinner rolls and a couple of fish and then feeding everyone in the crowd, thousands of people. He walks on the water, defying everything we understand about water, unless it's You know, Lake Michigan and it's frozen, but, you know. He's the bread of life, providing eternal life. And he's the provider of both sustenance and salvation. It's all summed up in him right now. These things are just stacking up one upon another. So if you're reading it in succession, you start to go, oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah so you're not doing it over you know like four weeks like we did but you're reading it in succession and if you understand the imagery there that you're seeing he's just piling up one thing on top of the other until you just have this huge mound of evidence who am i looking at and your only conclusion is yahweh yahweh has come in the flesh And all of it is in such contrast to the Jewish leaders. Because what do they provide? The heavy yoke. They provide judgment. They provide disunity. They provide, no, taxation. They provide Yeah, nothing. They don't impart life. They take it. They don't impart hope. They take it. They don't impart resources, provision, life. Nothing. They are taking. They're taking. They're taking. Whether they're government officials or religious officials, all one and the same, And Jesus, Jesus in full character of Messiah, wants to bring the well-being, hope, healing, provision, eternal life. They're worried about their glory, their land, and their power. He's worried about the people, the hopelessness, Then John tells us that this provision he was speaking of referred to how the Holy Spirit would come and overflow within, and and once Jesus was glorified, and that this would begin to that eternal life would be shared with others. That this is the overflow that comes into the lives of other people, bringing that hope, bringing that eternal life to others. Then we find ourselves verses forty to forty-three, and the people are divided over who Jesus was. Some realize. Some think that he was the prophet, referring to the great seal of the prophet in Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses talks about his successor, uh, specifically in Deuteronomy. But that reference to the idea of the prophet. Some say maybe he's that great, the great prophet who will do all the things that Moses did and more. Maybe he is the Messiah come to liberate us. But we have all these things that we've been told all along, isn't He supposed to be from here? Isn't He supposed to do this? Isn't He supposed to do that? And everyone is full of opinions. It's clear that it's not yet the time for Jesus to be fully revealed. It's getting closer. You and I, even though it's only chapter 7 for us and of course there's you know 21 chapters there and we're thinking to ourselves well we still got the majority of the book of of the Gospel of John to go Uh, in terms of chronologically in time actually the vast majority of the time has already passed of Jesus' ministry just at this point. It's getting closer but it's also becoming a potentially more and more dangerous situation As I said before, we we trust that God knows what He's doing, but we and we also know that Jesus was purposeful about staying out of the hands of the crowd because, well, because they're so fickle. But we recognize like what it's like, and if you've ever like watched the Chosen and how, you know, they're like I I think they do a good job of showing how the. The disciples are getting concerned more and more about the crowd, about safety and security issues. They're like going, man, this is getting dangerous and people are beginning to resist us and things are happening. And sometimes they're faced with large crowds of people who are angry about what they're doing and saying. And, and the conflicts are, are just arising, right? So that we have this tension in the biblical story where on one hand Jesus comes to bring everyone together and on another hand he like brings the sword that causes division right and we sit, read these texts like on one hand Jesus is saying i've come to put mother and you know against son and brother against brother right because as we're called to this thing it it creates a tension because we're no longer like the world around us and yet that's not the intent. The intent is not to put us at odds with the world. The intent is to draw the world into the hope of the kingdom. So there's, there's this kind of strange dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy, but it's, it's still very much in the perception of people's minds and all the turmoil that's going on. So you and I look at that situation, we we can certainly sympathize with why they are confused. We can sympathize with why the crowd is fickle. We can think about what the religious leaders are telling people. They love some of the rabbis. Like the time that they were in Jesus' hometown and they took him to the cliff to throw him off the cliff. His neighbors and relatives, right? Like, let that sink in. The level of turmoil that's swarming around all of this. And each time, Jesus escapes unharmed because it's not his time. But yet, we know how this dynamic works in the end when Jesus finally surrenders and they finally crucify him. Remember that this was not the work of Satan. Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. Satan knew full well the outcome would be if he let Jesus go to the cross. And so the temptations of Jesus are to find another solution apart from the cross. He's constantly offering him other solutions. And then we read last week where he even uses Jesus' own brothers. Oh, you know, there's got to be a... If you're going to want to be famous, you've got to do it this way. And we have Peter who says, no, not so, Lord. And, and the Lord looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Satan does not want Jesus to go to the cross. It's not Satan who is driving the religious leaders to put Jesus to death. And I am reminded it's clear that not even Satan can stop men of ambition from destroying his plans. Not surprising that they would also work against the plans of God. See, Satan's a created being, and while he is powerful, he cannot control humanity. The cross is not only a testimony of God's heart for us, it's also a testimony of what's in the human heart in its pursuit of power and ambition. They put him to death to hang on to that. I think that's important. See, going all the way back in the Old Testament, right? and we're in Genesis, and we've got the building of the Tower of Babel, and God says to God's self, if we do not do something to curtail their ambition, nothing will be impossible for them. Understand, in that moment, that wasn't a compliment. Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard is famous for saying, It's probably best that we as human beings have no idea how amazing and powerful we really are, how godlike we are in many aspects, because it would only hasten our destruction if we did understand. Next time you blame the devil, you might consider what role you played in the process. And then repent of that, right? And while I am certain that the devil delighted some of the most horrific events in history, things like Mao's great leap forward, the reign of terror of Hitler's Germany inflicted on the world, I'm also pretty certain that he did not initiate those things and had very little to do with the ambition of those men that drove them to believe that they were above the rule of law. If you want to know how people continually think they're above the rule of law, just watch Traffic. And then as you wave at that person, hopefully with all your fingers, look in the mirror and remember you do too. See, it's a lot easier for you and I to blame the devil for things like that. Because it puts Mao and Hitler and people like that in the exception column. We can tell ourselves they're not normal We are. And then I don't have to deal with the kind of evil that's in my own heart. On the other hand, if we recognize that these were religious leaders, probably people that if we had lived in their day would have respected as community leaders. And they acted in defiance of both God and Satan if we recognize that uh, Hitler and Mao did not need Satan to do what they did, how much more significant what Jesus did. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Wow, David, he didn't even know about the cross yet. Who is man that you're mindful of him? When you consider the evaluation of actions of the human heart and things like that, and the significance then of Jesus going to the cross to do what he did to purchase us, that the the, the words of John 3, 16, for God so loved this world. The world that does things like that. The world who would like to tell itself that the Hitler's and the Mao's are the exceptions rather than the normative of how people actually treat one another, think about one another. You've got to understand why this is really hard for me, because, see, I'm the kind of guy that wants to believe that everyone means well. I, I'm the guy that, believe, that wants to believe the best of intentions. And in 35 years of pastoring, I have had to conclude that John Calvin, when he his views on depravity of man might actually be a lot closer to the truth than I want to believe. But if I will wrestle with this, and I will be honest with my evaluation of myself, what I am capable of, then all the more my desperate clinging to Jesus and to the power of the Holy Spirit and to the desire to be transformed so that I might know and do his good pleasing and perfect will the more all the more reason i have motivation not just just a, a grand vision of being a better person but i begin to have the real intention. I want to move from the place of what I could be like to the to the place that I want to be like. I, I don't want to stay here in the midst and trust my own goodness, trust my own inherent capacities or whatever else, but I recognize and I throw myself on the throne of grace. I'm asking, God, would you do in me what I cannot do for myself? God, would you Help me to discipline. Would you help me to grow? Would you help me to reach in, press in, to pray without ceasing? Because I know what I could be that I don't want to be, and I know what I can be by your Spirit that I want to be. Oh God, as I stand in the crossroads of those two things, have mercy. Have mercy on me. The worst of sinners, have mercy on me. Oh, Paul, I think you you were talking about me, not you. How great is the love of God for sinful man that he would redeem us from ourselves. Then we get to verses 45 to 52, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, you know, that. We're reminded again, right, this stark contrast. He's the provision, he's the hope, and then we're back to the chief priest and the Pharisees. just And that dripping contempt for the soldiers and the common folk. Add to that the level of contempt they even show Nicodemus, one of their own, for pointing out what the law said. But right, he didn't like go. Well, you know, maybe I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, Jesus isn't that bad of a guy. No, he didn't say that. It wasn't. It wasn't like he like wandered into this thing like you know, kind of dopey or whatever. Like going, well, I don't know. He seems like a nice guy. You know? <laughs> like, he's he. Think he, this is a a smart man. This is an intelligent man, and so he he very critically, very smartly points out. He says, but our law our law we're supposed to be the people of the book we're supposed to be the people of the law the torah does our torah and they just lose their stuff on him i'm quite certain that it's we get the sanitized version the visceral hate that they feel free to let flow in those moments toward the guards, toward anyone, to the common person. What a bunch of revel. Just the, the viciousness, the visceral hate. You know, for the average citizen of Israel, you and I must have compassion. They didn't fully understand the difference between tradition and what the Bible says. And the availability to study the scriptures was nothing like we have today. You and I can go down to Walmart, and for 35 dollars, you can get a leather-bound Bible. I mean, that just wasn't available in their day. That's pretty cool. I-, I can remember just even a few years ago where you couldn't get, you know, a Bible for less than 50 dollars, let alone leather-bound. Now you can get a paperback Bible for five bucks. Online. You can pull up a Bible online and just scroll for free. If you got internet, you know, which you probably do for other things that are less noteworthy, but you know, it's. We have to have compassion on the citizens of Israel as they're caught in the mix and we see this turmoil and the chaos. We must. For the average citizen, we can commiserate with them over the dysfunction and the oppression of government and bad religious leadership and things like that. And, and we can appreciate why they, they didn't understand Jesus. They've, they've had all this other stuff told them. They've had all this other stuff preached at them. And they're, they're trying to weed through now. They're trying to make sense of it. Don't suppose you've ever felt that way. But when we look at the religious leaders and we realize that they knew full well who he was and they just didn't like it no we must hold them to the highest standards of accountability they knew and they didn't just not care they thought it appropriate to destroy as well as to withhold and they had contempt for the very people that they had charge of, their care. They, in, the, in the words of the prophet, they were fattening themselves on the sheep when they were supposed to be the shepherds. And I would suggest to you that all of us who know Jesus, like when we look at the, the contrast between those two things, That we also recognize, you know, that one of the things we're told is that when we come to Jesus, that we are all to know Him from the least to the greatest. So that we are responsible, as the Holy Spirit lives within us, responsible to do what is right and to do what is just. Not just simply blame leaders or just to follow them. When we know what is good and right, but choose otherwise. The fact that your sins are forgiven doesn't mean that there are not consequences in this life. Christians who sin often will be dismissive. I hear it all too often. Well, God will have to forgive me. Is that really only the point? Seriously, I mean, if, if the only reason that we're following Jesus is because we just don't want to go to hell, what makes you think you will like heaven? If you don't like him, if you don't like his ways, if you don't like what his word says, if you don't like mercy and compassion, if you don't like generosity of spirit, if you don't like forgiveness, kindness, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't like that, what makes you think that you're going to like heaven? No. Christian, when you and I sin against God, it's not just that we're forgiven. Listen, over the years God has saved me from many a foolishness. And yet can I point out to you that everything from foolishness to criminal behavior still has earthly consequences. You default on your payments, you're going to lose that. (laughs) Your car, your house, whatever it is. You do the crime, you will likely do the time. Cheat on your taxes, your spouse, your time card, God is not bound to rescue you from the consequences, he forgives you. But forgiven of eternal punishment doesn't mean you escape the present situation, and doesn't mean that you get off the hook of all the situations. God's let me off the hook of, for stupid many, many times. I can name a heap of things that He let me you know, off the hook for. I can also name a heap of things He didn't let me off the hook for. Anyone want to testify? No, let's not do that. <laughs> we'll be here all day. So as we look at our text, listen. Listen and see how Jesus' words not only spoke life to those who had ears to hear but that his words also confounded those who were unwilling to follow, right? They, just, they, they don't even know what to do with some of this stuff. And so sometimes we find ourselves in that place where we have ears to hear and we feel compelled by his message. And other times uh, we are confounded. We, we, maybe we're not even really wanting to listen. Throughout these two chapters... God was revealing through Jesus' ministry that Jesus was and is Yahweh God come to his people to redeem them and to impart life abundant. This impartation means that eternal life is now available to everyone who follows. It means his provision for abundant life is available now, not just in the sweet by and by of the future. And we must also recognize the significant role our will plays in all that we do and how we respond both to God and to others. That having been created in the likeness and the image of God means that our will is powerful and spiritually substantial. Which is often made light in the church out of respect for the sovereignty of God, but often in practicality is made light of in terms of our actions we must resist both extremes that either downplay God's sovereignty or make light of the real spiritual power of our will as image bearers of God. And then we must hold ourselves, and if there's real authentic fellowship, each other accountable for outcomes. Not just in terms of our eternity, but the impact Of our lives on the entire cosmos let's stand together oh god you have made a powerful people we look at ourselves in the mirror and we tend to think of ourselves as powerless maybe because of those who have lorded over us maybe because of situations in life that we seem to have no control of, situations, jobs, bosses, health. And it is easy to think of ourselves as people who are defenseless and powerless and not recognize the tremendous power that we actually do have. Today, Father, we're asking that you would begin to stir us up with a sense of expectation, not only of what you are doing in the world, but how that we could participate in that, that we could put our hands to the plow, not look back and see the abundant transformation in our communities and the lives of our friends and family, that we could impart life and hope, that we could bring the kingdom of heaven to bear in the lives of the people that we love. And also to the people who are strangers, who are far off. Yes, even to our enemies. Lord, we pray that today that you would stir up within us a sense of expectation, believing that the God of all provision that not only sustains us biologically but sustains us spiritually sustains us and gives us all that we need in this life is also the same God who goes with us into the challenges into the difficulty goes with us as we share our faith goes with us as we go to work and into every place that where you've commissioned us to go as your as your people as soldiers of the cross of people who are bringing forth good news hope redemption And that we would have more confidence in your ability to lead us than in Satan's ability to deceive us. Lord, empower your people, not just in theory, but empower us and and stir up within us courage to bring life and hope and healing. Lord, today, for every place in our heart that we have allowed Either tradition, or our politics, or our our unwillingness to stand between us and sharing the gospel. Between us and being a people of light in life. Uh, uh, Every place where we've made excuses instead of stepping up. Uh, I I pray that right now, would you, by your Spirit, put your finger on those things and just bring a a spirit of repentance over us today. Lord, in those places where we've not understood our great potential, our ability, would you stir up within us a sense of encouragement, of anticipation to believe that you will use us, not just pastors and teachers, not just the leaders in the church, not just someone else, but use me today. Use me in the grocery store. Use me in conversation. Use me talking to my children. Use me talking to my parents. Use me talking to my siblings. Use me talking to my neighbor. Use me to serve both enemies and friends. Those who are near and those who are far off. Empower us as your people and help us to tap into all that you want to do through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask the prayer team, go ahead and come on up. If you have need for prayer for anything today, let me encourage you to come get some prayer. If you're able to come back and join us this afternoon, 1 o'clock, to do a little tearing down, we'd love to have you, you know. And uh, otherwise, uh, You have a fantastic week. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.